Right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the fight over mandatory vaccinations for BC teachers and school support workers. Who's in charge here? The BC government says this will be a local decision. Each individual school board will make up their own vaccine rules. Here's Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday. There is a responsibility for elected representatives who, who put their hand up and said, I'd like to be on the school board to inform themselves about the best way to protect their employees and, and the children within their district. Uh, and I don't mean to be accusatory here, but uh, there's no shortage of information. Okay, but some school board trustees in B.C. are saying, don't dump this in our laps. This should be a provincial responsibility. Here's Tracy Loeffler in Mission. I'm pro-vaccine. I'm double vaccinated myself. I do believe that teachers, anyone working in uh, the schools, especially with those unvaccinated kids, do have a moral obligation to get vaccinated. But as an individual trustee, I am not comfortable making medical decisions on behalf of other people. All right. Let's discuss further now with my guest, Jackie Taggart, Liberal MLA for Fraser Nicola. She is the official opposition education critic, and I'm pleased to welcome her back. Jackie, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Mandatory vaccinations for teachers and school support workers. I mean, this is a contentious issue, to say the least. Is this something the province should be leading on and not dumping this in the laps of 60 different school districts? Your thoughts? Um, Well, absolutely. It's a public health issue, and um, the province has a role to play. Um, they, we don't need a patchwork of different uh, processes in different schools in different school districts. Myself, in my writing, I have four different school districts. I think uh, parents and uh, staff deserve a provincial decision from this government in regards to uh, safety in schools and in response to this public health um, issue. It, it is absolutely crazy to me that they would think uh, that 60 different school districts should have this on their agenda and be making this decision um, in isolation. Yeah, I mean, when they brought in mandatory masks for kids in schools, that was a province-wide mandate. They didn't say to the school districts, you figure it out if the kids should be wearing masks where you live. They said, no, this is a provincial priority. It's a provincial issue. So I'm, I'm not certain why this one, when it comes to mandatory vaccinations, which isn't even an even bigger uh, decision why they would want to dump that down and and download it to school districts. One thing that occurred to me for your thoughts is, could this be a a recipe for local conflict? I mean, you know, I think this could divide some local communities, divide some school boards, create some angry angry local school board meetings. You have concerns there? Absolutely. I I think that, um, you know, you take a look at how passionate people are about their about their positions. And I don't think public school boards is the place to have this debate. And so if it is a public health order, if it is a public health issue, the provincial government should be making a decision. And they should be accountable for that decision. We're hearing from parents. We're hearing from teachers. We're hearing from staff. We're hearing that people are willing to take a look at this. It takes a decision from the provincial government to move this forward. Right. I guess just listening to John Horgan yesterday talk about this, I guess he was claiming that he doesn't have the jurisdiction to act here. And he said there there is not a provincial health order for mandatory vaccination for teachers and support workers. And that would be up to Dr. Bonnie Henry and that she has not issued such an order. Do you think the 
the government should override her on this and and bring in a public health order? I think that the um, you know the public health order um, is up to Dr. Bonnie Henry, but um, the provincial government has a has a responsibility to take a look at what's happening, um, how concerned parents and staff and schools are, and um, take a look at that. I mean, when we looked at the mask mandate, two school districts led the way, and the provincial government hopped on. And so um, I don't think it's fair to put this on the table of school boards who are uh, not medical professionals, who um, are doing their best to keep our kids in school, but they don't need this on their agendas at 60 different school boards. Right. Speaking to Liberal MLA Jackie Taggart, she is the official opposition education critic at the legislature. One thing that occurred to me was we, there are some areas of the province, of course, that have got lower vaccination rates than others, So, particularly in the north of B.C. where the vaccination rates are lower. Could this create like a patchwork of different rules from school district to school district where some school districts decide to opt out and say, okay, We've got a low vaccination rate here in the north, so therefore we're not going to require teachers and support workers to get vaccinated. So you'd have different rules depending on which district you're in. Um, absolutely, that's a possibility if this is not a provincial-wide mandate. And why would that, and be, a, so, why would that be a problem in your mind? Well, um, if, if you have four, I have four school districts in my riding, and um, depending on how school districts um, choose to make the decision, um, what does that do to staffing? If people are mandated in one school district that they have to be vaccinated, but not mandated in another. So um, the logistics of it are just absolutely incredible. And um, it's not just public schools. We have a lot of other schools uh, that are serving children. And I think that if, uh, you know, if they're going to do it, they need to be uh, accountable as a as a provincial government, and they need to do it province wide. Right. So you mean like a province? But it is their decision. Yeah. Right. No, I agree with you on that. And you, so you think there should be a province wide mandate that would cover public schools and private schools too? Well, I think that if the provincial government is going to go down this route, yeah. then they need to actually step up and be accountable for making the decisions that they're uh, responsible for and not downloading it onto 60 different school districts and others who are providing education for children. Right. And how do you like analyze what, what Horgan's doing here? I mean, is this like an abdication of leadership? I mean, is he, is he just trying to sort of, you know, get rid of a political hot potato that's in his hands and let somebody else deal with it? Uh, absolutely. I think that he's, uh, this is a hot potato, and uh, he's decided, I mean, when we look at other uh, provincial mandates, yes, there are health orders, but um, the provincial government is not the, the um, employer of health care workers, but they, they have mandatory ma- um, vaccinations. The, provincial, the, the teachers and QP have said, look, we're, we're looking at the numbers. We're looking at uh, the concerns. We are willing to talk about uh, the next steps. Right. The yeah, missing no, you, link is the provincial government. No, it is very. It is very strange. I mean, you've got the two major unions involved here, both saying 
we're okay with this. Like, we're yeah. willing to support you on this. So it's not like you've got a labor-friendly government that doesn't want to cross cross swords with the unions. I mean, the unions are saying, you know, we want the mandatory vaccination, and and you got an NDP government doesn't want to doesn't want to do it. One thing that Horgan yesterday at one point said was that this should be a local decision, that this is about local accountability. These local school trustees are elected and they're accountable to the people who elected them locally. But I have heard from some school trustees already, and I suspect you have as well, saying, like, don't do this to us. I mean, you guys should take the lead on this. Don't dump this on us. Are you hearing that from trustees? Absolutely. And and I think that we're hearing it loud and clear that this, this is about children and children's safety in schools. And this is also about staff safety in schools. And we're seeing numbers um, that are rising um, daily in schools, exposures. And uh, the provincial government has a job to do here. And they need to step up to the plate and make a decision. Either you go with it or you don't. But be accountable for your decision. Don't dump it on locally elected school boards. Yeah. Speaking of Jackie Taggart, Liberal MLA, Fraser Nicollet. Jackie, let me go back to uh, June 30th, uh, the day of the catastrophic Lytton fire, uh, when Lytton burned to the ground. And I remember speaking to you at that time. And here we are days later, uh, many, many days later. And I know you've got concerns about the provincial response here uh, to the, for the, helping the fire victims. What are your concerns there? Well, we're 100 days in. And I'm hearing daily from people in Lytton who are so incredibly frustrated with um, lack of clarity, lack of process, lack of consultation. Um, where is the provincial government? Um, when the provincial government has a document that talks about process for catastrophic events, yesterday in the House, the Premier indicated that he chairs a committee that is looking at um, Lytton and uh, the rebuild of Lytton. Well, that's the first I've heard of it. And, um, you know, if they're doing work on the ground, they're not telling people. People are still not able to, um, to go in to the village and have access to their properties. A hundred days later. And not sure what the recovery plan is, not sure what the planning is, what planning is happening, and not sure what Lytton's going to look like in the future. But they are uh, absolutely frustrated with being away from home, with uh, sitting in motel and hotel rooms, not certain what's going on. And um, when you ask who's in charge, <laughs> like, like I get phone calls all the time, and I, I don't have someone that I send them to. Here's someone who can answer the question because I don't know who's in charge. Yeah. I'm, I'm expressing the frustration that I'm hearing from people who have been uh, 100 days waiting for government to um, step up, coordinate. Um, government has the expertise. And um, you know what? This is a small community. They have maybe seven or eight employees in the village. And some of those aren't there because their houses burned down. Everyone was traumatized. Government has to step up and coordinate what's going on. And I would emphasize 
that they need to coordinate it with the people of Lytton, not for the people of Lytton. Jackie Taggart, thank you for being on the show today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about Metro Vancouver's affordability crisis in real estate. How can we build more homes that are actually affordable for people to buy? Everyone talks about the need for density, duplexes, fourplexes. How about this one now? Row houses. Why don't we build more of these? And can we make them fee simple in other words you buy your row house unit you own it not like a strata or a condo it's an idea that's been talked about for a long time how come we can't get more of these built let's discuss now with my guest michael geller michael is the president of the geller group he's an architect planner and a real estate consultant and i'm pleased to welcome him back hi michael how are you it's nice to chat with you again mike Michael, thanks a lot for coming on. Row houses are are very interesting to me. I remember they they seem to be more common in in other countries. I remember visiting family uh, back in Belfast, Ireland, Northern Ireland, many years ago, and all my uncles and aunts were living in these row houses over there. They're very common. But you t- tell me what you what appeals what appeals to you about these row houses. Well, first of all, as you correctly say, this is really the most generic form of housing in the world. It's everywhere, except for uh, the Lower Mainland. What appeals to me, and I don't want to pretend that this is suddenly going to become a very affordable option. It won't be, but it's another choice. But what appeals to me is you can have a ground-oriented home with a front door at the street, and you don't have to pay strata fees, and you don't have to deal with a strata council. Those are the advantages that I see. Right, so you would buy, okay, so let's say they build these row houses, you buy a row house, it would be known as fee simple, right? You would own it, you would own that unit, you wouldn't be part of a strata, that's that's the way you would like to see it set up? That's right. Now, some have been built in Surrey in the last few years, a couple were built in Vancouver, but the problem is, it's not part of our tradition, except if you go to Quebec City or the Maritimes. It's not part of the traditional forms of housing in British Columbia. And so our approval system isn't set up for it. We're set up for single-family houses. We're set up for apartments. We're set up for strata townhouses. But none of the rules and regulations recognize this form of housing. And why, the reason I'm speaking out is because I think they should. Okay, why do you think there's resistance to it? Partially because nobody's really thought about it. They never really thought about it because they assumed that people, if they want a townhouse, they'll live in a strata development. Many people say to me, Mike, I mean, if this is such a good idea, how come it's taking so long? And my only response is just think about how long it took before they started putting wheels on luggage. (laughs) There's lots of good ideas out there. They just take a while. Ten years from now, I predict that most of the row house developments built along major streets in throughout the lower mainland and victoria where i'm speaking to you from today will be individually owned if you go to toronto downtown toronto it used to be that all the townhouses were condo today majority of them are individually owned because people don't want to be part of a strata council 
That's not to say static councils aren't perfect for some people. Condominium development can be perfect for people, but it's not perfect for everybody. Okay, what's it like? What do you think it'd be like in living in in some of these row houses? I, I've talked to people about advantages and disadvantages of them. Like, if you pack people in like sardines, do you have a, a potential for conflict and noise coming from your neighbor? Well, there's a lot of people living listening to us right now who live in townhouses, and the reason they're in townhouses is because they moved out of a single family house and they weren't ready for an apartment, so they prefer. Sure, the neighbors perhaps are a little closer than they would be in the single-family house, but you certainly have a lot of advantages over an apartment. So, I mean, again, it's kind of one of these missing middle forms of housing we often talk about. Right, the missing middle. So it gives people something they can afford to buy, and that non-million, if you're a non-millionaire like most of us are, you could actually afford... And when you talk about these these freehold row houses, are there any local zoning bylaws that are a barrier to building them? Yes, to the not so much the zoning bylaws, although most zoning bylaws uh, they they do say allow townhouses, but they don't specifically refer to uh, what I'm calling fee simple row houses. One of the other aspects of it is because you own your own land, your lot is going to be subdivided from the lot next door. And as one of the Vancouver councillors, Melissa DiGenova, pointed out, you know, you not only have to do all of your plans, you also have to get a subdivision approved. But the fact is, there's no reason why that should take uh, much longer just because it's a new idea. Um, As you may know, 35 years ago, I was promoting laneway housing when I worked for the government. Uh, That took 35 years. But today in Vancouver and Victoria, laneway housing is now becoming more common. And for a lot of people, it's a good housing choice. That's all I'm proposing here. Yet another housing choice for people who don't want to pay someone else to cut their grass. I mean, I often say, why should someone who can least afford it be paying a gardener to do their gardening. How do you overcome resistance in some neighborhoods that may not like these type of developments? And I'm thinking about single-family detached homes, single-family neighborhoods, where there are often localized fights over this. A, a developer may propose to put in some townhouses or row houses, and you instantly get a fight from the neighbors who may have a, a, a detached home. And a lot of the local councils will quickly buckle under that kind of pressure. How do you overcome that? By pointing out to the people living in those single-family houses that in 10 years, they'll be ready to sell their house, and rather than have to move into an apartment, wouldn't it be nice to have a smaller row house in your neighborhood? And indeed, I often find that so many of the people who opposed developments 20 years ago are the now, now the ones actually calling for some of these different housing choices so they can stay in their neighborhood. I don't want to be uh, Pollyannish about this. Of course, there will be opposition. But the point is that often these will be very small, little infill developments, the kind of that you see uh, traveling around Victoria. They don't have to be big projects. I have an application right now into West Vancouver for five row houses on a single-family lot. Each one would be individually owned. They even have basement suites. So you can actually have mortgage helpers 
within the townhouse. Again, it's just another housing choice that I think many people would like. Right. Michael, you mentioned that uh, people are familiar with the townhouse setting, is townhouse setup. What's the difference between a row house and a townhouse, if anything? I'm glad you asked that. Nothing. It's terminology. Uh, some people do distinguish, but for me, a row house and a townhouse are essentially the same thing. What is different, though, in terms of what I'm talking about, is these row houses, they're not part of a condominium. They're individually owned. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about row houses and other affordable options, my guest is Michael Geller. Lots of phone calls here. Let's go to Jason on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Jason. Hey, Mike and Mike. How are you doing? Good. Go ahead. Hey, Michael Geller is absolutely right. One other aspect that I love about the row house idea is that it increases safety. If you can have shared backyards or backyards that back onto each other, then everyone's leaving and arriving from the front of their house, and you've got everyone in their backyards at the back of the house. It eliminates all the traffic in the alleys. I just I hate the alleys in Vancouver. Okay, what if you don't like your neighbor? Well, that's what fences are for. <laughs> okay. okay, Jason, thank you for that. Let's squeeze another call here. James in White Rock. Hi, James. Hi, I love the idea, but we just went through this whole brouhaha with city council over parking permits. So if you're taking one lot that's going to have two vehicles in it, you're going to put four on there with basement suites. You're going to be adding eight cars to the lot. How are you going to get parking for that? Okay, good question. Michael Geller. So I have a 12,000-square-foot lot, or a client has in West Vancouver. I'm proposing five townhouses or row houses with basement suites. We've got a double garage behind each one. And uh, there is a lane there, so they will come in off the lane, but we're able to provide one parking space for each home. Yes, the backyard is smaller than it would be in a traditional single-family house, and the front yard's a little bit smaller than it would be, but it all fits. So I agree, parking has to be addressed. Uh, yeah. We've certainly had quite a conversation about that in Vancouver, as, uh, as Mike well knows. Yeah. But, uh, no, I think you do have to address the parking and certainly provide one space for every home, but it okay. can be done. Peter and Poco. Hi, Peter. Yeah, some um, strata titles can be a real pain, um, depending on the type of people that are actually on the council. certainly restricts your freedom to do a lot of different things, even though with a townhouse or a row house, um, you're still reasonably restricted, but you own if you own it independently, that seems that'll work much better. Yeah, thank you for that. Michael, what is the advantage of owning owning your unit or your townhouse or your row house as opposed to a strata? Like, why, what, why is that advantageous in your mind? Well, those people who are listening to us, Mike, who tried to change the planting in their front yard and got a note from the strata council to say that they could not change the plants without the approval of the strata council will say that's an advantage. Or yeah. those people who decide they wanted to paint the front, their front door burgundy rather than navy blue. You can't necessarily do that without the approval of the strata council. When you own the home, you can do it. Yeah. Now, someone will say, well, yeah, but what if the person wants to paint their house yellow? Sometimes you do have design guidelines in place to control just how much change. But you certainly have more freedom if you own the house, just as you do if, when you own a single-family house. Right. Okay, Kara on the line in Tawasin. Hi. Yeah. I've experienced both worlds. I have a baby and a toddler. We're in a single-family detached house in Tawasin. I lived for 10 years in a townhouse in South Surrey. 
And um, I do not like townhouses. Uh, they were great in my 20s when we were partying with our neighbors, when we didn't care that we could hear the garage door next door open and close. But, you know, your neighbor smokes, it's coming in your house. Your neighbor cooks, even if the vents are on the outside of the building, it's coming back into your house. Crime increased, and they just kept developing and developing and developing. The nature trails in our area all disappeared. Um, overall, I would never live in a townhouse ever again in my life. And, you know, I I appreciate the different types of housing developments, but I think we also need to appreciate that there's community and people who like to live in single-family detached homes, right. and we don't need to litter. Well, not litter, that's a bad word, but we don't need to have um, townhouses everywhere every time a single-family house is knocked down. What if you can't afford a detached home, though? I mean, isn't a townhouse like a, a, a better, like a starter option if you're starting out? Well, that's how we started, right? So right, we started yeah. in a townhouse in our 20s, and when we had children, you know, there's some people who love townhouses. They love that, you know, they want to hang out with their neighbors every night. They don't care if they're in their postage stamp backyard and everyone can hear them talk. Um, it, it works for them. And it, we had lovely neighbors. We're still friends. We'll be friends with them forever. Um, but it's not for everyone, and I don't think we have to... Um, just because somebody doesn't have doesn't mean somebody can't have. So this this notion that every if that was the case, you know, we should all be walking around shoeless because some people don't have them. Okay, so thank you. I for think the, there's a mix. Thanks for the call, Michael. What do you think of that? No, I think this lady's lucky that she can now afford a single family house. The reality is, we're all different people, and we all want different things. I would never say we shouldn't build high-rise apartments because some people don't like living in high-rise apartments. My wife doesn't like it. But we should still build them for those people who can't afford a townhouse or perhaps choose the security or the privacy. We need a broad choice of housing. And this is just one more choice. Right. Let's go to Rob on the line in Chilliwack. Hi, Rob. Hey, Michael and Michael. uh, It's Rob Grimm here. Michael. Miller, you probably remember me from the uh, when I was building. Um, I did um, there are, too. I, Go ahead, sorry, Rob. I've got a bad connection. Anyways, there are some municipalities that allow row houses. Uh, you can do them in Surrey, Langley, and we built some in Maple Ridge as well. And in our case, we took uh, basically what would be three 13-meter lots and put in four row homes. They were big, they're spacious. And they're another option, and uh, they were well received. Right. Was it Strata or no? No, fee simple, and that's fee, the yeah. beauty of it. Yeah. Okay. There you go. So, Michael, your thoughts? Yes, they are happening in Maple Ridge. They're happening in Abbotsford. They're happening in Langley, and the municipality is recognizing it. But in order to make it happen more widespread, we need to change a lot of the rules and regulations and the fees because right now, often the that small townhouse is going to get hit with all the same fees as a 4,000-square-foot single-family house. And then, as soon as that happens, most developers are not going to build them. So we do need to change the fee structure to recognize that these are smaller homes, more affordable, and they should have a different fee structure. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Over the last few weeks on the show, we focused on surging crime in some Vancouver neighborhoods, notably Gastown, the West End, the Vancouver Business District. Lots of trouble in these neighborhoods, break-ins, vandalism, assaults, general mayhem. And we've talked to a lot of residents and business owners in these neighborhoods about what they're experiencing. On yesterday's show, we talked to the Vancouver Police Department about their trespass prevention program. Now, this is a program to deal with people who are blocking doorways of homes and businesses. The police will attend and ask them to move along. We've heard lots of reports about people who will be sleeping in a doorway or doing drugs in a doorway or maybe even lighting a fire to stay warm. Obviously, there's a homeless problem. Uh, there's a drug addiction, huge drug addiction problem. And there's also a challenge with mental illness and people who are mentally ill, who are on the streets, often sometimes doing drugs, sometimes they're homeless. So they've got multiple problems going on at the same time. But mental illness is a huge problem. And we've heard a lot from people who say the police should not be the ones to respond to a mental illness call or a wellness check that maybe we need more social workers or mental health professionals to respond on these type of calls. Have a listen to this. This is Laurel Albina yesterday. Albina, sorry. Laurel Albina from the Defund 604 Network. Very critical of the police. And here she is talking about the needs for alternatives. Have a listen. If we only have a hammer, everything we see is going to be a nail, Right. And the police are just one tool in a very large toolbox. And frankly, we need to fund many other parts of the toolbox. Okay, let's talk about that now and whether there's a better way and if we can have more dedicated services to help people, especially if they need mental health supports and they're in distress. My guest is Johnny Morris. Johnny is the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association here in BC, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Johnny, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me on your show, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the pilot project that you're setting up uh, in Victoria with mental health workers that can be dispatched to, to crisis calls. Can you tell me how, how that's going and how it will work? Yeah, we're, we're in the, uh, the planning and the design phase uh, with the, the plan to launch uh, this, this new addition to the range of resources within this next year, Mike. And um, I was in front of council yesterday in Victoria uh, describing, uh, you know, this really is a paradigm shift, uh, much like the earlier comments of, of broadening the toolbox in, in how we respond to, to people in distress, not only people in distress who are um, on the streets, but also people um, who are in homes um, or in other communities who, who, when they're in a mental health crisis, um, often the, the only tool in the toolbox that's available is is to have a police response. So um, we're really excited to be planning this through and, and launching this this addition to the continuum of care within the next uh, number of months here, Mike. Okay, that's very exciting, and a lot of people have been looking for something like this. And so this would be like a mobile unit that could be dispatched to uh, like an emergency situation? Is that how it would work? Yeah, we'll we'll be working closely with first responders. I mean, here in Victoria, and and um, um, some of this work is happening also on the North Shore as well uh, on the mainland. Uh, we'll be working with the system. There's a system, as you know, around how things are dispatched and first responders, police, fire, ambulance. 
and also the crisis line network to make sure that the right response goes at the right time. You know, this this team will be um, starting up in, in a system where we've relied upon particular kinds of responses to date. So, um, yes, this would be a team that could be uh, dispatched to a range of, of, of crisis situations um, and then really do um, the work of connecting the person in distress to the right kinds of resources that are designed to reduce the crisis situation. Lots of crises are related to loss, um, loss of housing, food insecurity, loss of employment, grief, bereavement, um, depression, anxiety. And um, we think a community team uh, with the job of connecting people to services and resources uh, beyond the emergency department will go a long way in helping reduce the reliance upon our police colleagues and also upon emergency responses like ERs. Okay, how would that be better if you can dispatch a team of mental health professionals to help people? How would that be better? I mean, this might be an obvious question, but how is that better than the police responding? That's a great question, Mike. I mean, we've arrived here anyways, where um, for a host of reasons, um, the defaults become the police. That's through decades of underfunding in mental health services and care. Um, and also um, long-standing attitudes that I think are shifting around criminalizing mental illness. So mental illness over over the ages has been criminalized. It's been seen as as something to be scared of and and needing a a criminal justice response. Seventy um, percent of people in in jails in many jurisdictions live with a mental illness, and and that has to change too. So by changing the response. Um, it, it sends a profound signal around the right kind of care that's required for a health emergency. People experiencing crisis and distress, for example, someone experiencing a panic attack, someone who might be hearing voices, experiencing psychosis, those are health emergencies. And when there's a, no risk of violence or harm, we should be right. sending a health response, um, not a criminal justice response. Right. And I, I think one of the key points that you just made there was these would be situations where there is not a risk of violence like so so often the, the police will be dispatched if someone is potentially going to cause harm to someone else or potentially also to themselves and the police mm-hmm. will the police will respond it, it, in situations like that would your teams be responding or would that still be a police file or could you attend with the police to help them mm-hmm. yeah we've seen good examples of um, co-response models too, right? And that enables um, things to change in the situation where you might have the mental health professional respond, the police are there in the background. And there's, there's, those kinds of programs do exist on the lower mainland. Um, and they do here in Victoria as well. And, and this program is modeled after a program in Cahoots, um, uh, Cahoots in Eugene, Oregon, where sometimes police will absolutely attend. So it, it adds to the toolbox analogy. It adds a an ability to 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 be um, uh, to be responsive to the situation in front of you. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, um, uh, there could be a, a public safety issue present. Uh, um, uh, a weapon, for example, like a, a two by four. Um, you know, that that could be a situation where there could be a mixed response: a civilian team like ours, um, a mental health specialist team, and police. Um, and then there, of course, are situations where police are required, where the risk of harm is very high, like if there's a presence of a firearm. But all of those kinds of things, I think what we what we do need to do is make sure that we're sending the right kind of response 
um, that we're we're discerning, we're 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 kind of changing the system so that we're not bluntly sending a response that can sometimes result um, in injury and and devastatingly tragic outcomes like fatalities. Oh yeah, yeah. No, we've seen some terrible tragedies, and that's why people would say like it's time for a change. We, we we can make the we can do this better. Speaking to Johnny Morris, he is the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association here in British Columbia. Uh, about their new uh, mental health crisis response teams. This is a pilot project. It's set to start next year in Victoria. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the that's the timing we're looking yeah. at. But the kind of the big key step here is to to really work with community partners and people with lived experience to to really design something that's going to be responsive. A one size fits all is not going to work for all communities. But yes, within the, the, the year, we're going to see this team um, integrate and, and start operating in Victoria. Right. And with the people on the team, like the people who would respond to a mental health emergency call, where, are they like social workers, mm. ment- mental health professionals? Like what kind of training or special or skills would they have? Yeah, we're, we're looking at a kind of a, a, a multi-pronged approach in the work that we're seeing in the North Shore. They're looking at workers with mental health training, but who can also... Uh, respond to um, language diversity or cultural diversity. And so we are looking for that mix of, of mental health knowledge and expertise, of course, like social work, counseling, etc. But uh, one of the key ingredients here is also um, what's known as a peer support specialist or someone with, with experience. And so people who might have experience of mental illness themselves may have experience of, of navigating the health system and what we've seen in other locations is that kind of knowledge helps build trust with the team. There's, there's a way of, of building trust quickly and relationships so that, you know, people often, you know, will go voluntarily to seek out the help that the team can connect them to. So that's a bit of the, the kind of the, the combo that we're thinking through here, Mike, of, of um, making sure that it's, 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 it's a mixed team that can respond to the different kinds of needs that people in crisis are experiencing in the community. Right. All right, welcome back as we uh, continue my conversation with Johnny Morris, CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association in British Columbia. They are setting up a pilot project in BC set to start next year with a mental health crisis and uh, crisis response teams to work closely with the police on mental health calls. I, I've talked to police officers in the past who, who have told me that when the police respond to a mental health call, it can sometimes be frustrating because sometimes they will they will apprehend someone under the mental health act if they determine that someone is in a crisis and they're a danger to themselves or a danger to others and that person may end up being assessed by a, a healthcare professional through the health authority and then guess what they they end up back on the streets because there's no there's no services for them there's there's no recovery bed for them Mm-hmm. Is that is that a challenge? Like, it, like if your teams go out on a on a crisis call and you see someone that's really sick and needs help, what happens to them? Did they get the help, or did they just end up back on the street? Well, the observation from the police officer that you spoke with, Mike, and your question is is so timely and so important. I mean, here in BC, and not just in BC, in many jurisdictions, there's a couple of options: the emergency department, and and for some, unfortunately, they end up kind of housed in a police jail cell. So we we do need to create um, um, things that are in the middle there that can really support people in crisis. A big part of our work will be. 
um, trying to connect people um, in community with resources that can assist like, along the continuum. It might be it might be shelters, it might be um, transition housing, it might be trauma support in the moment to try and and uh, and respond to the crisis in the moment. Like crises can be fleeting, crises can be long term. Crises are often driven by um, drivers, as I mentioned earlier, like housing loss, etc. But you're right. Like we we do need to think through um, what spaces might become available to support people in crisis. In in the United right. Kingdom right now, in Australia, they've created uh, and the United States they've created um, crisis care hubs, basically um, spaces that are not the emergency department, but sometimes attached to a hospital, sometimes in community. Um, that can provide a caring, um, safe, um, um, and calming environment with the right professionals in place um, to help someone um, help someone uh, kind of regain a bit of control, um, get connected to resources and help. Um, we do have work to do around making sure that people are connected better. Uh, given the example you've said, when they've gone into an ER, what happens next? Once right. they're discharged from that ER is is a complex problem that that requires all of our attention um, going forward. Um, we think these teams are a step in that right direction. Yeah, and one of the other arguments I hear frequently, and I'm sure you've heard this too, is that people will point to the decision many many decades ago to close down the Riverview Psychiatric mm-hmm. Hospital in Coquitlam, and people will say, "Well, look at the look at the mentally ill people on our streets who are suffering and they're in crisis." and they need help. Oh, we never should have closed that Riverview Psychiatric Hospital down. That's where these people should be. What, what do you think of that argument? Like when, and I'm sure you've heard that. Yeah, and it's a debate that's been alive and well in this province for a long time. I mean, we could do a whole show on that together, Mike. I mean, yeah. arguably what, what has happened since um, deinstitutionalization is, is for a portion of folks, folks have been reinstitutionalized within the correctional system or other forms of care, which is not a good outcome at all, partly because um, the, 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 the necessary level of community supports that are required um, to help people live with dignity in community closer to home um, has never fully been realized. There are steps right. absolutely underway right now, um, but um, that's part of the challenge. Um, you know, keeping people in community um, with the right kinds of supports it takes investment, it takes imagination, it takes creativity, and it takes, you know, a pretty big approach to reducing stigma. I think we're at a point across many jurisdictions that have moved away from institutionalizing folks. I, th- I think um, that's been an important uh, departure to, to ensure and enable as best we can that folks living with severe and persistent mental illness, you know, can live with dignity and thrive in, in community. We have a ways to get there, and um, you know the, the notion of kind of keeping people out of sight and out of mind um, is, is 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 kind of previous thinking that I think we need to move beyond um, because we all have a right to mental health. We all do, and some folks really struggle with that. And the question is, what kinds of supports are we putting in place in community? And there are a number um, that can help people do well and do okay in community. Just got one minute left. So as you look forward to your pilot project in, in Victoria next year, is, is all the funding for this in place? And, and what is your hope for it? If it's successful, it could be expanded? Yeah, we've, so we've got a, um, a, a pilot on the North Shore that we've, we've um, cobbled together some monies from, including from the province, which we're very grateful for. Um, 
Um, there's a bit of money there. And we've secured a, an, an initial grant from the province um, under the community Strengthening Communities Grant to get the team going in Victoria. These are limited pilots with limited resources. What we really hope to, to, to prove out for our funder, the province and others, is that the concept works and that um, we can fully, fully resource these teams and these new communities in an ongoing way and look provincially at what other communities, uh, you know, might benefit from this. Um, the city of New Westminster has been a, a, a huge um, a- advocate for this. They're doing some great crisis care consultations right now uh, with one of their councillors. So there's a number of communities that are very keen um, okay. to think through how we might expand care. Thank you very much for your time today and the important work you do there at the Canadian Mental Health Association. Appreciate it. Mike, so appreciate your questions and your interest in your care as well and hope to talk with you again soon. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about a key case now that's heading to the BC Labour Relations Board between one of British Columbia's biggest unions and Uber, the giant ride-hailing company, of course, operating now in British Columbia, the United Food and Commercial Workers, the UFCW. This is a large private sector union, and they say Uber is treating their drivers, three of their drivers, unfairly. The union says three Uber drivers in B.C. were fired after they had conflicts with passengers. Let's discuss now with my guest, Kim Novak, president of UFCW 1518 here in BC. Kim, thanks for coming on again. Thanks. It's good to be here. Okay, this is a really interesting situation, and it's getting a lot of attention today. Uh, Tell me what happened to these three Uber drivers that you're representing here. Yeah, so these drivers, uh, between the three of them, have thousands of positive five-star reviews and a rating of 4.8 or higher overall. And yet, all of them were involved in situations where passengers refused to follow protocols that are actually set out by Uber. So in one case, it was because someone refused to wear a mask in the car. In another case, it was because they wanted to bring too many people into the car. So when the driver refused to take them as a result of following the Uber policies that have been set out in health and safety, uh, they got bad ratings. And immediately after, were kicked off of the app and essentially fired from their employment with Uber. Okay, just taking a look at the uh, the background information you've put out on this, Kim, it says that these these three drivers actually had racked up some great reviews from their customers, like, you know, a thousand, two thousand positive reviews. How could, why would Uber fire fire these guys after one incident? Well, that's a, a very good question and one that they have not been able to get the answer to. So despite having these thousands of great ratings between the three of them, when they were immediately kicked off of the app after these bad reviews had come in, they had attempted to try and get a hold of Uber to explain their side of the story, to get more context around what had happened and to get themselves put back on. And after time after time did not receive a response back. And that's why they came to us. And that's why we're now filing at the Labor Relations Board saying that without due process, this is absolutely absurd, especially because it was due to health and safety issues, that they be terminated from the app. Okay, let's talk about what happened to one of these drivers uh, that you're representing here. The, the driver says that a customer got into the Uber car not wearing a face mask. Did, did you say that's Uber's own policies, right? You have to wear a face mask in the car, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Uber yeah. has put out their COVID safety protocol saying that a mask is required for all passengers. Right. Okay. So this passenger gets in, doesn't have a mask. The driver asks the passenger, please put the mask on. Uh, the, the, uh, the passenger gets angry, uh, starts threatening a driver. Driver phones the police. 
Uh, the police removed the customer from the driver's car. So is any of this in dispute? I mean, like, is the customer saying, no, that's not true, it didn't happen that way? Like, I'm just wondering why why Uber would fire a driver over a, a violent customer who's not following the rules. Well, the whole problem with this this process is that there isn't one. And so to hear the perspective of anyone else isn't something these drivers have had access to. All they've experienced was the incident themselves, then they saw a bad rating, and then they were removed from the app. And you know, that really goes back to the bigger issue of, these drivers truly are employees of Uber because as independent contractors, they should have the ability to be able to make decisions, but they don't. Ultimately, they are all held to this app and Uber being the one that's running it and ultimately their employer has the ability to just kick them off and give them absolutely no reason for it or process by which they can appeal or tell their side of the story, which is exactly what's happened in this case. Okay, speaking to Kim Novak, president of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, going to bat here for these three Uber drivers who were fired from Uber, is going to the BC Labor Relations Board. An- another case described described here as a- an Uber driver who says that uh, they had four, was it four customers wanted to get into the car and that's too many? That's right, because in order to have four people come into the car, one would have had to sit in the front seat. And at that time, there was a policy in place by Uber that said that there are to be no passengers in the front seat due to distancing protocols and not having a plexiglass shield there. Yeah, so I guess the maximum is three passengers. That's right. Is that yeah. right? Okay. Exactly. And so, okay, so the, the driver refuses to take four passengers, customer leaves a bad review. And what, this is a firing offense? How is this possibly a firing offense? I couldn't agree with you know more. That. And, and that's the thing that doesn't make sense about, about this whole process is that really these drivers are held to these, these reviews. And so the review comes in, it's completely from the perspective of the person who is disgruntled or upset by the fact that they couldn't get the ride that they wanted to have. They put in this review that goes back to the app. The app then through the algorithm will kick you off and therefore terminate you. Yeah. And so I agree that this, we, this is not a terminable, especially when someone is refusing unsafe work, which is what was happening for these drivers and trying to follow these protocols. But because there is no due process for them to be able to make their case, they're left unemployed. And these aren't part-time drivers. These are full-time drivers who work at least 40 hours a week working as Uber drivers and who had invested in new vehicles to make sure that they were meeting all of those requirements, and now suddenly they're out of employment. Okay, what labor laws have been broken here in British Columbia, in your opinion? Like you mentioned that, you know, workers have the right in B.C. to refuse unsafe work so often you know you you, you picture a uh, a construction worker and, and maybe a boss who says get up there on that scaffold i don't care if you're if you're not wearing a safety harness i mean you're not you, you you can refuse you can legally refuse hell no i'm not taking unsafe work and you can't fire me for refusing unsafe work that law applies here with these uber drivers is that what you're arguing that's exactly right. That we're arguing that an un, it was an unfair labor practice that was that happened against these employees for being terminated for refusing unsafe work, and that is what we're taking forward to the Labor Relations Board. And simultaneously, we're also calling on the BC government to change Employment Standards Act to have these drivers recognized as employees, so that they have the full rights under Employment Standards Act, so that this doesn't happen to more drivers who are standing up for their rights and ensuring that they're refusing unsafe work. Right, yeah, and that's a fight that's been going on a long time, because right now Uber drivers are considered contractors under the law, right? Not employees. That's correct, yeah. yeah. And what would happen if they were employees? What, what difference would that make? Uh, it would be a huge difference. I mean, for example, something like this, when suddenly you get kicked off of, of the app and terminated, that you would have a process under employment standards to be able to challenge that. You'd also have the ability to have access to uh, a basic minimum wage, 
so that for people who are doing this, especially as full-time work, that they are able to have a consistency in their living wage. And then obviously the health and safety component that comes along with that. And this wouldn't be unique to BC to have this change. We're seeing this in jurisdictions around the world where Uber drivers are now being considered through legislation as employees. And it's a huge game changer, especially when it comes to the safety of everyone, the drivers and the passengers. Okay, I did re- I did uh, ask Uber for a statement on this, Kim, and I did receive a statement from Uber, and it says they are they have received a copy of this complaint. They are reviewing it. Uh, they say there is a case review process that could be used here, and they say it's this is a they describe it as a human led. It's a human led case review process. I guess that's different from the firing process, which sounds like it's automatic. Like it sounds like the Uber has a computer algorithm that will like automatically lock drivers out of the app if they get bad reviews. Is that right? Like it's computerized? That's how we understand it is yeah. that the algorithm itself and the ratings that come in for drivers is connected to the technology. And I wouldn't dispute that it may be human led, but the process by which these drivers that we're representing went through was they called the call center, just like someone who's taking an Uber that's not satisfied would call. They press one if they're a driver. They try to talk to people to say, hey, we, we, we want to clarify why we got taken off this app. We want to be put back on. And the response they continued to get was, we'll get back to you, and never actually got a response about their complaint or concern. And that's why they contacted us. And now it seems once the union was contacted and we filed this complaint at the Labor Relations Board, Uber is now responding, which ultimately goes to the fact that these drivers deserve an advocacy group to represent them to get responses back from their employer. What do you want the Labor Relations Board to do? Do you want the the board to order Uber to give them their jobs back? Yes, we want to see them reinstated and compensated for the time that they've been kicked off of the app. Because like I said, these were people who are working full time in these jobs that have now lost access to their living. Is there any case law on this? Like, has has the BC Labor Relations Board ever adjudicated like an Uber complaint like this? To your knowledge, uh, my understanding is that this will be the first of its kind in BC. I'm sure in other jurisdictions this has come forward. In fact, that's what led to the fight for employment standards to take effect and for uh, Uber drivers to be recognized as employees. And in other areas around the world, we're now seeing these in areas where they have been identified as employees, they're starting to join a union and have worker associations to represent them so that they have yeah. better working conditions. Yeah, you, you want to unionize these drivers, right? I mean, if they were employees, they would be, then be eligible to, to join the UFCW, join your union? Is that what you want? That's right. Ultimately, we would love to represent them. But what our focus right now is worker rights and making sure that they're first are recognized as employees. And that's why we're taking this case on is to highlight the fact that despite what Uber says that they're independent contractors, that's not what's happening. That's not been the experience around the world. And it's certainly not the experience for these three drivers. And I'm sure many, many others uh, around BC and Metro Vancouver. Okay, last question for you. When will this go in front of the BC Labor Relations Board? Have they got a backlog over there or? Well, we filed it this week, so we hope to hear back as soon as possible. And, you know, last time we filed at the board with respect to Uber, it was before they were actually active in Metro Vancouver, and it was heard quite quickly. So hopefully we'll get this one to the top of the deck and get a response back shortly. Okay, we're going to follow it closely. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Thanks, my pleasure.